And we do have good examples in Europe. We have many top European scientists. Look at ERC grantees who got Nobel Prizes. We do have world-scale universities. We do have highly innovative European companies. I'd like to mention as an example, just to show that we, we yes, we can. Um, for instance, ASML from the Netherlands is a world leader in precision lithography, which is a key uh, step to making semiconductor chips. It holds about 80% of the global market share. It's the only company with the next generation extreme ultraviolet systems. It scores in the R&D largest, um, score, the scoreboard of largest R&D spender, it's 118 place. It grew its R&D budget last year with 23%. It's an R&D intensity of 17%. It employs more than 14,000 employees, but was only founded in 1984. So you see, even in digital, we do can um, also produce these kind of companies. The only problem is that uh, this is one of the few, and that on average, Europe actually has consistently failed to exploit its potential of innovation-based growth. And this is despite the series of innovation policy strategies, documents, and targets uh, that we have. So if you take a bit a look at the evidence, um, then like for instance, the own EU evidence on the Innovation Union scoreboard, the EU is only very slowly catching up with the US. Uh, and if you take a look at uh, others which are way faster catching up, China is very impressive. And within, within the EU, we also do see um, a consistent divide between the North and the South. And that divide has actually become even bigger uh, after the crisis. Uh, the whole innovation uh, angle, um, if we decompose it into the business and the public sector, the business R&D intensity is, is one where we are particularly weak compared to the US uh, and even China. Um, if we take a look again at the scoreboard of R&D largest uh, spenders, all the EU-based uh, companies here, although they grew last year, their investment in R&D grew with 3.3%, so that's uh, good news. Um, Nevertheless, if you compare that with the US, those US companies grew by 8%. Um, and the Chinese companies, uh, China is now the third largest country in the scoreboard uh, here. The, those Chinese companies grew by 23%. Uh, the largest uh, company now is, is Huawei. Um, and also, if you take a look at who the biggest spenders are, uh, so in the, U in the EU, our three biggest spenders are uh, Volkswagen, Daimler, and Bosch, uh, while in the US, it's uh, Microsoft, Intel, and Google. So that also says something about the type of sectors and also the typical age of companies uh, that are driving the R&D uh, corporate uh, landscape. And if we look at public spending on R&D, uh, also there uh, with uh, also the fiscal consolidation pressures that many countries have had in the EU, we do see on average, uh, a growing divide where the North and particularly Germany is pushing ahead with public spending on R&D, but particularly the countries in, in the South, which were already weak, lagging innovation countries here, have also cut on their public spending uh, on R&D. So, uh, despite all these positive examples that I started out with, uh, there is still a big question on what the prospects are for Europe to really become a world innovation leader. Uh, what will it need to do differently from what it's currently uh, doing here? And as there is little room for extra budget, how can we actually improve the effectiveness of innovation policy? And after this panel, in one hour and a half, we have all the questions to these uh, 
uh, all the answers sorry, <laughs> to these uh, questions uh, here. So as I already said, we really have a great panel, so I'm, I'm very happy with all the, the members here. Uh, we start first with the first round uh, of short um, uh, statements, then we will have a, a, a second uh, feedback session, and then we will open uh, the floor for the general discussion. So I uh, would like to give the start to give the floor with, to Scott Stern. Scott Stern is, uh, for those of you who don't know him, is a professor of management and technology at the MIT Sloan School. His research concentrates on innovation and entrepreneurship and has recently worked a lot on regional clusters and entrepreneurial ecosystems. This also will be what he will be talking about mostly here. Uh, he also directs uh, and is the co-founder of the Innovation Policy Working Group uh, within NBR. So he's really very well placed to give a, a good overview of what works, what doesn't work uh, for innovation policy. Scott, the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much, and thank you very much for having me here um, at this important annual uh, meeting. Well, I only have a very limited amount of time, and Reinhilda has asked me to stay on time, so I'm going to be brief. Um, what I want to do is I want to start, oh, hold on. Is it possible to, that we can move it forward? Maybe if you could move this. Sorry. Any chance to? We'll deduct that from your time. Okay. Okay. So, so I'm just going to start talking, and then we'll we'll catch up on slides when they when they figure that out. Um, so I'm going to make the claim that very many, particularly those who are close, who know about innovation and entrepreneurship, but that is not their main area of focus. Think of places such as Silicon Valley as the field of dreams from which European growth can reside. The idea is that somehow, if we could just have our next Silicon Valley, uh, whether or not that be Silicon Fjord or Silicon LA or the various initiatives throughout Europe, to replicate or imitate or adopt the innovation-driven entrepreneurial ecosystems that characterize some of the world's strongest clusters. The challenge, though, as my colleague Josh Lerner at the Harvard Business School has emphasized, is that down that road, by and large, has been a boulevard of broken dreams that fundamentally trying to build the next Silicon Valley for most regions in the absence of a real strategy and the absence of a commitment to something that is unique is unlikely to be a source for sustained economic progress. The question becomes then, how can we grow through accelerating innovation-driven entrepreneurial ecosystems? At MIT, um, I, I've spent a lot of time at meetings like this one over a long period of time with almost half the people on this panel right now. And a few years ago, I decided that this was the wrong way to go, that we needed a new approach. And along with Fiona Murray and Bill Allett at MIT, we founded something called the Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program, where we work with stakeholder teams in a very intensive two-year engagement to not simply bring people together, 
but to develop a set of shared understanding with people who are actually on the ground within these regional systems, but also policymakers, and also universities, and also corporate and venture capital. Come up with a shared understanding based on objective quantitative measurement that allows for prioritization and strategy to develop a plan and then actually implement a plan to accelerate innovation-driven growth. Um, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through the REAP program in a great amount of detail, but I'm going to highlight one piece of it that I think can be helpful to think about the European growth discussion. Specifically, one thing that I think when you think about innovation policy and what works is that ultimately you have to connect the initiative of government, the initiative of universities, the initiative of people at multiple levels to the actual behaviors and activities of innovators, of entrepreneurs, of companies. And how do you develop that is to do that you need shared understanding. You need to develop meaningful and actionable metrics that can guide policy design assessment and implementation. To do that, one of the things that we did within the Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program is just to give you a, a sense of the power of really thinking about how the dynamics of these systems and the role that policy might play, is we developed a new way of accounting for not simply the quantity of entrepreneurship, but the quality of entrepreneurship in terms of the potential to drive the regional growth process. Briefly, that methodology involves starting with full-scale business registration records. Of course, in most, uh, even in the U and the scoreboard, there's still lots of metrics. I'm looking at Dominique here, uh, where we look at uh, how many new firms are formed in Italy or in, uh, in Belgium. But let's face it, most of those firms are very nice shops or dry cleaners or pizza shops or whatever it might be, right? That are unlikely to be the, emerge to be the kind of firms that Reinhilde laid out earlier. But it turns out that there are digital signatures at a very early stage that can indicate to you that this is the type of firm that either has the potential and intention to be the kind of transformative growth firm that needs to underpin growth. Simply put, the Harvard bookstore was a bookstore near Harvard selling books. At founding, Amazon.com wasn't in the books business. Some firms ultimately do grow, of course. And what we do is that we then trace those firms that grow, and we create a mapping between that and those predictive factors. That's not causal, just a little predictive analytic on things that shape the types of firms that grow over time. That turns out to be a very informative quantitative exercise. I'm not going to go through these numbers, but the way of thinking about it is in the United States, looking at about 70% uh, of GDP, um, your chance of becoming a growth firm is 20,000% higher if in your first year you've registered your company in Delaware and you, you apply for a patent. Okay? We have other things as well. Uh, if you're named uh, Reinhilde's uh, 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 waffles, you're probably a wonderful person named Reinhilde trying to sell some waffles. Uh, if you're naming yourself uh, something more uh, unique, uh, that probably changes 
are indication of whether or not you're at least trying to grow. Not these are not causal factors, they're predictive. Um, it turns out that's an extremely informative regression that then has allowed us to develop a new class of entrepreneurship economic statistics that let us map the growth process in real time on an incredibly granular basis. This is our prediction of an address level for those firms that were founded in the Silicon Valley Bay Area between 2013 and 2014. These firms have not yet grown. The visualization here is everything that is darker means it is much, much more likely to grow. So if you look at the area, I'm not going to try to do laser pointing here, but if you look at the area to the bottom left of your screen, you'll see an area right around Stanford that's this kind of wall of entrepreneurial quality. You see another area in the San Francisco area, a very large number of firms with much higher potential for growth. Interestingly, at a regional level, for those of you who know the area, the East Bay of Silicon Valley, much less resident to those growth-oriented firms. In the interest of time, I'm not, right, we also have, we can do, look at those dynamics. So I'm not going to use a minute of my 10. We can actually trace out the evolution of an entrepreneurial ecosystem over a 25 or 30 year period. Really seeing this is the area just around MIT. Okay. We've been able to sort of, oh, oh if you could move back to, oh, well, there, well I, apparently we're, get it, we're getting the movie, there you go. What you can see is the, this nice visualization is kind of showing you where the orange is, that's where the growth firms are. The firms that in the kind of starry night area in the middle, that's where the students all go to bars and things like that. This allows you to actually see this in a relatively granular way. If we could move back to the other uh, visual, that'd be great. Thank you so much. We've been able then to kind of scale that up to understand the potential and dynamics for growth across every zip code, um, across these uh, about 20 US states. It also has led to a new finding. As many of you know, there's a belief that business dynamism is on the way down in the US. It turns out that quality adjusted quantity has actually, uh, did have a peak during the dot-com boom, but has not had the kind of secular decline that would be observed in a quantity metric. The challenge, though, this work also defined that the real challenge, though, is the firms are being founded, but at least in the US, they don't seem to have the ability to scale anymore. So we then look at what's the probability that you grow conditional on being of a certain type. And what we see is that there's been a significant secular decline in the scalability of growth startups in the United States. Finally, this measure, much more so than quantity-based metrics of entrepreneurship, as well as other measures that try to predict regional growth, turns out to have a large and significant impact on 10-year um, uh, GDP growth. Finally, and I'm going to uh, finish up very briefly, is to say this kind of metrics, when get, are implemented at the regional level, allow you to have a, an informative and shared understanding discussion among multiple regional stakeholders, mapping the kind of detailed quantitative analysis that governments and policymakers are often good at with the kind of phenomena, the kind of on-the-ground understanding that many of our entrepreneurs and innovators actually engage with. That's allowed us to work in a wide variety of regions, many in Europe, to actually not simply talk about moving forward innovation and entrepreneurship, but actually to develop a tailored concrete action plan with these regions that has allowed them to actually find a new agenda, a new and distinctive and unique agenda for their innovation-driven entrepreneurial ecosystem.
ultimately, smart acceleration of innovation-driven entrepreneurial ecosystems needs to be key for European growth strategy. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. On time. Your image is perfectly on time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, and it also shows, uh, I think, also the power of using big data to really start answering some uh, important questions uh, here. So the next speaker is uh, Albert Bravo Biosco. Bioska, sorry, um, who most of you, I think, also uh, know here. He's the head of the Innovation Growth Lab at uh, NASTA. Uh, he, the, the aim of that Growth Lab is really to bring forward innovation policy, make it more experimental and evidence-based uh, here, and he will talk about that uh, also. Uh, he's, he worked also uh, on business growth dynamics, so very much also in line with, uh, with Scott's uh, talk here, and also the drivers of venture capital, so I think he's very well placed also to bring forward the innovation policy uh, agenda here, uh, particularly also the, with the emphasis on stimulating uh, entrepreneurship and venture capital. Albert? Thanks, Regile, for the invitation to be here uh, and address the panel. Yeah, that let's see if I'm luckier than you are and it works the first time. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of making uh, uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, growth policy more experimental uh, and evidence-based. Uh, I mean, if we think about innovation policy, there is a range of policies. Uh, I'll be focusing more of mostly on those that actually cost money. I'm not saying these are the most important ones. Uh, very often, the more institutional reforms can have a, 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 a stronger impact, but I'm hoping my fellow panelists will, will handle uh, some of them, as well, Scott sort of already uh, uh, did. Uh, Renhilde mentioned in uh, her introduction that there is no new money. We actually, uh, uh, so we need to find ways to spend the money that we're currently spending in a wiser way. Uh, uh, I think, I mean, I would say, I guess, two things. First one, it's possible. Uh, second uh, element, second thing I would say is we are actually spending lots of money already on it. We did uh, uh, some work uh, uh, trying to get an estimate of how much governments uh, uh, spend in uh, uh, different types of programs to support innovation, entrepreneurship, and growth. We did a very granular analysis in the UK, really trying to find out how much it was, and we, it was sort of 10 billion every year. We did then a little bit of more back of the envelope calculation for Europe, looking at different ways of doing it and uh, uh, different assumptions. Uh, unfortunately, the data to actually do a precise number is not available, uh, but the number that we sort of come up with says that we are spending every year, the Commission plus European countries, 150 billion euros in programs to support innovation, entrepreneurship, and growth. That's a lot of money. So even without new money, and that doesn't say that you know, new money would be uh, actually a good thing, particularly in some areas, don't get me wrong, uh, uh, you know, there is quite a lot of money that if we make sure that it is spent in a wise way, we could achieve much more than we're achieving. Uh, the challenge is that uh, we really don't know very much about you know, what this money is, is uh, uh, achieving. Uh, a group of people, I mean, is this because we're not evaluating these policies? No, we are. And actually, uh, a group of uh, researchers that are uh, based at the uh, LSE-based Woodwork Center for Local Economic Growth did a systematic uh, review of 
basically all the evaluations, or mostly all the evaluations they could find on schemes aimed to support local economic growth, innovation, entrepreneurship. And they looked basically at almost 15,000 evaluations. Uh, how many of those do you think that they considered that provided a credible answer in terms of the impact of the policy? 90%, 50 50%, 25%, 10%, 2.4%. So yes, we have evaluations. The problem with evaluations that we have is that they are very good to convince the people who already agree that the policy is a good thing, but they are terrible at convincing the people who disagrees with the policy. Uh, and just to kind of be uh, 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 clear, credible here is not requiring a randomized controlled trial, and I talk about, uh, I'll talk about it uh, a little bit more next. Credible is that there is some quasi-control group, counterfactual, that you can sort of make the case that uh, uh, if the companies that got the intervention didn't, uh, uh, haven't received it, their evolution would have been similar to the companies that you are comparing them with. And there are different methods to do this. On this criteria, which you know, it's the one that at least it's the minimum threshold that you should aspire to. Ninety-seven point five percent of evaluations don't even meet that. If we then try to look for impact, then the number is even lower. It's only point zero point six percent show a positive impact of this one hundred fifty billion that we are spending on uh, 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 business support programs and innovation support programs. This is looking at all type of support schemes. Uh, uh, we can look also uh, only at uh, innovation, uh, at evaluations of innovation schemes. And here, again, they looked at 1,700 evaluations, quite a big number, and I'm guessing no one is going to say that 90% of them were, uh, 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 were good. Actually, also 3 4% were credible, 0.4% of them were found to have an impact on productivity and uh, to demonstrate a positive impact on productivity, sales, turnover, growth, and the typical measures that we as policymakers ultimately care about. Uh, <coughs> so the question, I guess, that we should be asking is how do we make good innovation policy? And I think that if we think about good innovation policy, uh, we have to think about uh, uh, three principles, three things that we need. Uh, first, uh, 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 we need to experiment much more. Uh, if we look at the ways we're spending this money, a lot of the ways we're doing, uh, haven't ch a lot of the problems we're running haven't changed much in uh, no, 15, 20, 30 years. I think there is a scope for quite a lot more uh, experimentation innovation. Uh, there is also, uh, as you've seen, just a lot of scope to use data and evidence much better. Big data is one, and, uh, 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 no, is an exciting opportunity, but also administrative data sets sitting in agencies giving money. It's uh, uh, I know, the, long, the low hanging fruit that is really not really utilized. And finally, you obviously need judgment. I mean, innovation is forward looking. If someone tells you, if you want to achieve innovation, do this and you'll get Silicon Valley, as you know, Josh Lerner. Uh, who used to be my, my advisor, used to say, you know, it's the, that's the boulevard of broken dreams. So that is, uh, 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 you always have to add a little bit of judgment to that. The ideal scenario is when you can combine experimentation and evidence, and this is doing experiments that actually create good evidence on whether the intervention is working. Experimenting is not trying new things. Experimenting is trying new things and putting in place the systems to, uh, uh, to learn. How do we actually do it in practice? Uh, uh, Typically, we have a minister or a commission announcing a big policy uh, without being tested at a small scale. Uh, 
what's the challenge with that? Is that we don't really know whether this is the optimal design for the policy. We are assuming that this nice Lego cathedral here is the best way of running this policy, but how do we know whether actually, instead of this kind of big cathedral, this big scheme, we should be testing with some smaller policies or some small programs or just iterating in as minor features of the program? Or maybe it's thinking about, for instance, entrepreneurship schemes. Sometimes you can you know, experiment with how do you attract entrepreneurs to apply in the program and sometimes on how you run the application process. You can experiment on what do you give them. You can also experiment whether actually do you need a tech incubator or you need an accelerator and this is a different model. And maybe you want to try something totally radically different. This is just Lego, which I actually love even more uh, now that I can play with my little one-year-old son. But the message, hopefully, is more important than this one. It's when we are setting up a new policy, we don't really know what's the best way of doing it. Instead of assuming that we have the answer, let's just test different ways of doing it. The question then comes, how do we test it? And here, uh, 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 there is one way that has been very much under, underutilized in this policy area. It is the idea of randomized control trials. They are used in education. They are used in uh, social policy. They are used in health. And the idea is, you basically have an intervention, you know, let's call it an entrepreneur, a company, an innovator, uh, uh, and you want to find out what's the impact of different versions of the intervention. Sometimes it may be a small tweak, sometimes it may be very big differences, uh, and ideally if you can compare it to a control group, even better. You then track them and try to find out, you know, what's the impact of the different one, and you scale up the one that works. This sounds like, you know, children's play, uh, 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 and something that happens very often. Actually, it doesn't. This is why uh, uh, at Nesta we created the, the Innovation Growth Lab, which is a global collaboration of governments, researchers, foundations, that has as the objective uh, make innovation entrepreneurship growth policy more uh, evident, more experimental and evidence-based. Uh, and to show that it's possible, I mean, I just want to go through a couple examples of uh, trials that we have we are working on that we've supported. Uh, we have like 20, 25 ongoing in different shapes and forms, but just kind of three examples of programs looking at the three areas, uh, uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, and growth. Uh, one of the questions that, for instance, we have in innovation policy is how we encourage tech transfer. And there is a range of instruments that people use. A lot of these instruments are testable. Uh, one uh, pilot that we are actually running with uh, uh, the uh, UK Innovation Agency, Innovate UK, is looking at what's the impact of innovation vouchers. These are small vouchers that you give to companies to buy services from universities or knowledge providers. Something as simple as trying to find out what's the short-term impact and what's the long-term impact, and then using that to also try to understand what the problem is, is something that has been done one or, once or twice before in you know, the Netherlands, but typically, while a lot of governments are using innovation vouchers scheme, they haven't not really been thoroughly tested. Uh, Another example, and I'm rushing you there because I know that if not, Hilde is going to uh, uh, criticize me, uh, is looking at uh, entrepreneurship uh, support programs. And here, for instance, you know, one of the interventions that has become very popular in recent years is the idea of tech incubators. So this is a program. This one is actually uh, uh, we are uh, supporting a group of researchers that are testing what's uh, the impact of getting into a incuba tech incubator, and what's the impact of the some of the different services that they get. So how, much, how does the intensity of mentoring impact the performance of the entrepreneur? 
And a, a third example that, uh, 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 of projects that we're working on, this is a project that we are doing with the Danish government, that we have the Danish government set up. And this one was basically looking at a, a major program, flagship program they've set up to support high growth businesses. Uh, with coaching, consulting, all this you know, suite of interventions that again, most governments do, but very few actually test. We're in Brussels, so just to uh, 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 conclude, I wanted to kind of say a couple of things about what the Commission can do to increase policy experimentation in Europe in this area. And I guess there are two things that we you know, come to mind. The first one is lead by example. The Commission does runs a lot of different programs uh, in which you could very easily introduce experimental components. I still have to find a program where there is no way to experiment a little bit to make it work better. Sometimes it may be testing the full program, sometimes it may be testing operational aspects of the program to just make the machine run better. But that's something that the Commission could easily do. Uh, I know it's difficult, but it's perfectly doable. Uh, the second uh, contribution that the Commission could do to, to uh, policy experimentation in Europe is to actually help fund policy experiments throughout Europe. Uh, we don't have, and one way of doing that would be setting up a, a European Experimentation Fund for Innovation and Growth. The idea is a very simple one. I say that there is little innovation happening in this space, but actually, if you look at the range of players throughout Europe, being city councils, uh, local economic partnerships, national and regional governments, uh, 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 innovation support agencies, private sector uh, uh, intermediaries, university-based transfer offices, a lot of people are running programs that actually try to increase the performance of you know, innovation, try to support innovation, entrepreneurship, and growth. And there, there are some good ideas happening. The problem is that we don't have any mechanism to identify them, support them, give them some funding so that they can be tested properly, and then learn from these lessons, help to scale up those ideas in those countries where they're happening, and also inform similar decisions by policymakers uh, throughout Europe. So uh, if we were to do that, uh, 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 I mean, we were to take that jump, uh, it may be one way to actually have better, more effective policies and also start closing the evidence gap that I showed at the beginning. Yep. Thank you very much, uh, Albert. There is a lot of talk indeed at the EU level on impact assessment, not so much about how uh, this experimental design could fit in there, so uh, th particularly also the concrete proposals that you brought to the table are definitely ways to think about how to actually do implement and uh, start implementing this, so thanks a lot. Uh, so the next speaker is uh, Dominique uh, Gelec. Um, he's a senior economist at the uh, OECD. Uh, he heads the Department for Monitoring Innovation Policies. Uh, it's that unit also that does uh, the country reviews on innovation policy. So again, he's uh, perfectly placed uh, to have a look at what evidence we already have uh, and have been uh, developing for a lot of OECD countries, not just the EU, but also OECD countries uh, here. Uh, and on top of that, previously he was the chief economist at the European Patent Office, so he's very well placed uh, also to give um, a broad overview of what we know uh, about innovation policies in the OECD countries. Dominique? Thank you, uh, Renild. Uh, in fact, I will go um, even uh, beyond the OECD, starting with the G20, uh, which, uh, as all of you who read newspapers, uh, met um, the past weekend in Hangzhou, uh, China. And for those of you who have spent uh, some time looking at their uh, communique, it's not very long. Uh, 
can be a bit boring, but uh, it's nine pages, it's on the internet. You will see that uh, uh, there is something uh, somewhat unusual if you can compare with the previous ones. Much of it is about innovation. G20 was created in 2009 in order to save the world from a short-term risk that was uh, the financial crisis. It has all been since then about uh, finance and about trade. This time it was much about uh, long-term issues and notably innovation. That's a sort of good news uh, for all of us who've been advocating for the uh, innovation policy, the importance of innovation for growth and so on over the years. We know that there are limits to what is implemented then uh, from what is mentioned by G20. But still, the fact that the 20 uh, heads of state, the most powerful one on this planet, would focus their discussion and communicate on this issue is, uh, is certainly good news. Although it is based on a number of alarming signals. Why are they doing that? Well, they are referring to the goals of innovation. Uh, first one uh, is uh, about climate change. The roundtable before uh, mentioned also innovation as a way to uh, improve the technology that uh, will help us go into a low carbon uh, economy. And it's much about productivity growth. And um, that's what the G20 has been focusing on based on this diagnostic on the, the numbers that are really alarming. I mean, we've known of the uh, productivity slowdown for several decades, but now it's really becoming nearly stagnation in a number of countries. It's less than 1% a year. I'm talking of labor productivity in Europe, close to 0% uh, in some European countries. It's around 1% in the US. There was a, a further slowdown during the years 2000. So we can't say that it is the financial crisis per se that has been the reason for this slowdown. It was there before, uh, although, of course, uh, the financial crisis, crisis has not arranged um, these, um, uh, these matters. Coming back to the, uh, to the uh, G20 communique, you will see that innovation is closely related to other teams. Uh, meaning the new industrial revolution and the digitalization of our economies and so on, which are mainly about good news, well, with some alarming aspects possibly, but good news about uh, these fascinating technologies, robots, uh, 3D printing, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, gene editing, and, and so on, which are uh, in the pipe at the moment, the autonomous car. I mean, certainly there will be an autonomous car in this museum in a few years' time. Uh, and um, uh, so this is mainly good news when one thinks in terms of productivity. Uh, except that uh, we've seen nothing yet. I mean, some of these technologies have been there progressively for some time, and they don't translate into productivity numbers. So one might think um, uh, that there is some productivity paradox there, and uh, following Robert Gordon, uh, from MIT, you might think that, or Harvard, you might think that uh, it's uh, simply because these technologies are not as big uh, as they look to be, as compared with what we had uh, one, uh, one century ago. Uh, in OECD, we, we've looked at that. We have a somewhat different uh, vision of um, why this um, uh, paradox is there, uh, in addition, of course, to a number of measurement issues regarding productivity. Um, 
The, uh, when you uh, look uh, at a more granular level, at the uh, enterprise level, and uh, Alberto has been involved in this work as well, you see that there are a sort of uh, diverging dynamics between the uh, large firms uh, and the small ones. Uh, many large firms have not seen um, significant slowdown well, during the crisis, of course, but uh, then it uh, uh, growth resumed. There have been no acceleration in productivity for these firms, but no significant slowdown uh, either. And it's not the same thing for the uh, small, medium-sized firms not only in Europe, but uh, all over the, uh, the world, there have been a significant slowdown in productivity for these categories of firms. Um, and as Scott was mentioning, this could be related also to the sort of weakening in the ability for these firms to uh, upscale and even weakening in the entrepreneurial activity at large uh, in the US, but also in, uh, in other countries. So we have this sort of paradox uh, between uh, uh, large firms and uh, small firms. And um, uh, well, there are advantages related to scale, of course, especially in the digital uh, era. We know that digitalization or digital products come with things that economists call non-rivalry, uh, for instance. That is a, a source of uh, huge economies of scale, so it's an advantage for the large firms. There are sort of standards that operate in the uh, cyberspace, again, another advantage related to size. So uh, size is good these days. Size also uh, is a source of uh, market power, and we see that when companies negotiate, uh, well, with states, when they negotiate their taxes. I mean, have you ever seen an SME negotiating its taxes with the state? Large firms can do it. Uh, quite effectively in certain cases. They are able to sort of um, uh, influence the way markets work. They can negotiate prices with the small one. They can negotiate market rules and, and so on. So we end up in a situation that in many cases we might call a winner-take-all uh, situation. So this is, um, in, in, uh, to summarize the world that we live in when it comes to innovation, the world that uh, we have to think uh, of when it comes to questioning innovation policy in Europe. It's a world with large firms, small firms, winner-take-all, uh, advantage related to size, and, and so on. So where does Europe feature in this world? Well, uh, there are a number of examples. You gave some, Reinhild. Uh, but if you think of the large firms that dominate the cyberspace, there is no, not one, not one European name that comes to mind, actually. There used to be Nokia uh, that was close to this um, uh, club uh, recently, but uh, it's nowhere uh, now. So uh, Europe does not feature uh, very well. Um, should not be that pessimistic either. There might be opportunities in the future. The game is not over. I mean, with robotics, uh, with uh, 3D printing, with um, the autonomous car. I mean, the car industry of uh, Europe is, um, is strong. They might size these, um, uh, these assets and leverage these assets in order to uh, have a significant position globally there. But Europe is not very well, uh, very well positioned. So what are the, the lessons? What, what, what are sort of the normative uh, lessons we should take from uh, this regarding innovation uh, policies. Um, well, I would tend to think that uh, innovation policies of the future or the constraints of innovation policies of the future will be very similar to the one of the past. Simply, they will be a bit harsher, a bit stronger. 
just to take two or three of them. Science matters. And science has always mattered. Uh, science matters now. If you look at where uh, were the dominant companies of the cyberspace born? They were not born in the wild. They were born in MIT. They were born in Stanford. They were born where science is. And Scott's uh, schemes were quite illustrative of that. So if you want to grow companies, you have to be good in science. And yes, Europe is not bad in science. You mentioned that, Rainy. But is it that good? Is it as good as uh, the US? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, uh, uh, Nobel Prizes, yeah, there are numbers. Uh, how many of them have done their research in the US among the European Nobel Prize winners? Look at the recent example of uh, gene editing, which is now revo revolutionizing genetics. Three inventors, more or less. Well, there is controversy with that, so I won't go into the details. Three individuals, okay? Two in Berkeley, one in MIT. One is American, one is French, one is Chinese. Okay, so it's not, they might have the Nobel Prize one day, so you will be, Nobel Prize count will tell you one French, one American, one Chinese. But the reality is that the three of them did their research in the US. So, and it's much, well, it's, first it's about money. Yes, age 2020, it's impressive, 80 billion euros. Over seven years, uh, well, how much does the US government spend uh, every year on uh, R&D? 150 billion euros, something like that? Well, it's, uh, it compares with a little bit more than 10 billion euros spent by Brussels. I'm not saying that it's only about money, but uh, uh, I would agree with Alberto that we need to optimize policies, uh, experiment and uh, evaluate and so on. But well, there is also scale. And Europe is small. It does not spend that much. And not only Europe is small, but Europe is divided, and that would be my second point. I mean, again, it's all recipes. That has been said and repeated for years. Europe needs to get to a single market. It's not there, especially in the high tech, in the services. If you are a startup in Italy, you want to establish a branch in Spain. Well, you should rather go to the US. That will be easier to do it. Uh, you want to raise capital, in, uh, in, you need 100 million euros, the third round, uh, for your growth. Uh, yes, in Europe there is probably that much money, but it's divided in 28 pieces. So you will go to Japan, you will go to the US, and you won't grow in Europe because when you, when you get foreign funders, foreign capital, well, you will base your growth in these other countries. We've seen it in a number of cases. So old recipes mean more science. You need, to, uh, you need a single uh, market, and Europe is not, uh, is not there. So I will stop there. It's um, a new world, but uh, we should not forget what uh, might have worked and that we, in fact, did not really implement in the old world. Thank you, uh, Dominique, uh, to put us back on the, with our feet on the <laughs> in, in reality uh, here. But um, you mentioned indeed the problem that Europe has, and particularly with scale. Uh, so you, you say companies will go to the US, uh, will go to, uh, to Japan. But actually, some of them do come to Europe. Uh, and our next uh, speaker is uh, Mr. Egon Schulz, and he's, um, he's from Huawei. 
director of Huawei's Wireless Innovation Center in Munich. Um, he currently uh, is in charge of the 5G uh, innovation project uh, there. Um, Huawei is one of these examples of Chinese companies that are fast uh, growing, but also has its eyes on, on Europe. It has 18 EU uh, R&D labs where, uh, if I'm right, more than 1,500 people are already employed. So Europe is also on the radar screen, at least of some companies uh, here. Um, so we're very much looking forward to uh, also have this corporate uh, view uh, on, and particularly an external corporate view for the attractiveness of uh, Europe uh, here. Uh, so uh, Mr. Schulz, uh, is, um, his background is in theoretical physics and uh, electrical engineering, so no economist, so that means um, we'll have a completely different view on this, which we're very much looking forward to. Egon, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for the introduction. So my name is Egon Schulz. I'm located in uh, Germany, in Munich. Some people saying it's the Silicon Valley of Germany. And uh, I joined Huawei seven, seven, seven years ago after uh, the merger between Nokia and Siemens. So this means I have saved my job and saved my move to a different company with my knowledge. And yes, maybe. I'm now developing 5G, not alone, with all the other competitors which we have here in the market, like Ericsson, Nokia, all the operators, and so on. And I want to say that I have now more than 30 years experience in mobile radio, and I have not only make research, but I have also make developed system, 2G and 3G, I've made standardization. I have also marked uh, business modeling because I have to consult our marketing and sales, so this means I know a lot of things of this. And what I want to say is here, because uh, we do spend a lot of money for innovation ideas, but this is a big gap between innovation ideas and innovation products. That's a long way. As Scott said, we need a system, we need stakeholders, and we need a market that is mature for the products. And then we have also seen some ideas from Albert. Albert said, yes, we need the experimental, we need the design. Which of the ideas has the right design in order to make pilots and order to set the right yes, pilots to do that? This takes a lot of money. So this means if we're looking to the money which are spending the European Commission, they are spending more for the innovation ideas, not for the pilots, because the pilots are very expensive. And the European Commission is saying, okay, that should do the industry. So this means they spend their money, but not follow the way which will be really realized. And most of the ideas are coming from the academic side. But now we are going in the right direction, maybe it's the right way. We are, have a lot public-private partnership. The public-private partnership means there exist requirements from the industry. It's funding by the, by the public area not European Commission, but I want to say public, and that the partnerships, they promise to do this. And in this case, there's also the, the ratio between industry and research center and university is moving more and more going to the part of the industry. So this means the industry is more involved in this. But for the time being, they're not spending so much money for the pilot because the pilot is very, very expensive. Then we discussed about how we are not so fast for the innovation. Uh, I have started a research project that was called car-to-car -car communication in the year 2000. <laughs> and then, then I said, hey guys, you must need cellular radio. 
They said, no, it's too expensive. They want to have wireless LAN. They put wireless LAN, but now I have seen now 16 years ago, no product in the cars for car communications. This means sometimes they exist the makers for the decision, to do the decision, yes, we are going this way. Now we have spent 16 years, we have spent a lot of money in the innovation, and now with the 5G it's coming because I had the idea to push immediately also the car industry and to integrate it in the new system. And that's what we're now seeing is everybody is now pushing the vertical industry into the 5G system so that we're also looking which could be a new application. So this means you must have the knowledge to bring in new innovation in the new system. And I hope that will have a shorter time. So this means with the PPP, that is a good idea, but we have to improve it to integrate more and more the industry. What we are seeing is now, my colleague from the left side, he said about robotic. Robotic, I, s I want to say, but we will see it for the time being, because the product follows the market. The development follow the product and the research follow the development. So this means, I think, topic like robotic, topic which have uh, more uh, for the production of the industry product will go into the country where we have the market because they need the production machine, they need the robots, they want to develop this. So maybe we have also to look in which form we will have, we uh, will stay on the, on the same topic for robotic like now, like KUKA or any other things. We have to look very carefully to this. Then in order to increase our innovation ideas, we have to look how we can build some key universities here in Europe. So maybe in China we have one key university, that's the Tsinghua University, 90% of the money is going to this university. We have excellent universities, but it's fragmented. The same topic we have for the research centers. We have a lot of research centers in Europe, but we have, this is fragmented. We have two or three in Spain, two in or three in, in France, and, and they have a huge number of overlapping areas. They are doing sometimes the same, and also they also partners in the same research project. So this means a lot of, we spend a lot of money for the same things in Europe, but that is our multicultural, that is our European, we have to grow together more and more. So, and then, if I looking uh, to our, uh, maybe how many money of our European uh, uh, commission money or household we spend for innovation. If I looking how many money we spend for our farmer side, so that's uh, for innovation, it's not so big. And the farmer side, we produce job, but produce job for cows. And the cows produce more and more milk, so the milk will become cheaper and cheaper. So I think that is uh, not the right, right balance. So maybe we have to look in which form we can uh, spend more money for the innovation. Okay, and then we have to look in which form the European Commission can make a fund for venture capital in order to uh, support good ideas which bring very fast into the market. That is my thanks to say. Okay, thank you very much. Uh. So for also raising the issue of uh, not just on how big the budget is, but also where we will be spending it on, funding ideas versus funding markets, prototyping, uh, but also picking particular technologies uh, here. So that's definitely also uh, an issue uh, 
in order to improve the efficiency of innovation policy. So we had a lot of positive news, but actually more negative news uh, on, on, on Europe uh, from um, different angles. Uh, so I think it's now time to also have a look more uh, at innovation policy makers themselves too, and what, um, what they have been working on and how they actually see how Europe can actually move forward uh, with uh, its ambition to become an innovation-based uh, economy uh, here. So that's why we're very happy to have um, as a final speaker in our panel, Robert Madeline. Uh, he has a very long and also deep experience in working at the European uh, Commission. Uh, he started as a deputy head of cabinet for Liam Britton uh, uh, some time ago. Uh, he moved to be a director at DG Trade, uh, then a director general at Sanko, a director general at Connect. Um, and he's now uh, what's called an Orclas uh, advisor on uh, innovation uh, at the European Policy Strategy Center. And I think it's really very important to have that broad uh, experience uh, here because for pushing innovation forward, it's more than just uh, talking about how to improve R&D, but it's also how to get the regulation, how to get uh, uh, trade, um, all this within a global context as well. So we need a way broader perspective to move forward uh, on innovation uh, policy. So we're very much uh, looking forward to hearing Robert's view on this. Uh, he did a strategic note as, a, uh, as an advisor here on how to move forward innovation policy. Um, so um, I'm very convinced that you have a clear uh, message for us too on how to move forward. Robert? So, so ladies and gentlemen, it's nice to be here particularly to speak after this distinguished panel, because then I can cover my relative ignorance of the subject. In terms of news, Renilda, I, there won't be any news this week, because I delivered my report to, to the president in, at the end of June, and although they begin to discuss the programming for the second half of the Juncker Commission already on the coast uh, last week, it will only be with the State of the Union speech that we understand a bit where things will go. So. I'm not going to give anything I say should not be taken as a, uh, an implicit signal of what will be said in Strasbourg uh, in, in, in a week's time. But I think the first thing I would like to do is to say that I think as a, as a relative newcomer a year ago when I began a policy review on European innovation, one of the things that strikes me, and in a way we, we're doing it in this room today, is we all talk with great confidence about innovation without necessarily acknowledging how little we understand. And that's not uniquely because the fourth industrial revolution is more complicated than the previous ones, and we're in the middle of the maelstrom. It's also, I think, because uh, with today's technology, the, the innovation system is, as some of the real experts put it, a, an, an completely understood emergent uh, complex system. And so we have to be a bit modest about whether any action by anybody will actually uh, miraculously deliver more of whatever we think we want out of a system that we don't fully understand. What I think you can intend to do is to bring all the visible actors in the ecosystem to the table to discuss innovation. We don't do that today. In effect, I think we talk about um, innovation in this town largely with the research budget stakeholders. And I think that the ideas which have been put out by Commissioner Mueda since a year ago about an innovation council speak to the need to bring 
beneficiaries, social innovators, not just R&D-driven innovators, and not necessarily only uh, technical corporates into this discussion. What will you then discover? I think you'll discover the trust problem. The trust problem that the Edelman Trust Survey on Innovation put a big focus on in 2015, which is not specific to Europe, 51% of the ABC1s across 100 and something countries uh, surveyed by Edelman less than two years ago said uh, the world is moving too fast. Interesting. They've always said that. People don't like change. But they also said two out of three of us, we understand that you know, technical innovation is good for scientists and companies. But only one in three said we believe this is going to be good for us, our communities, our families, and the planet. Now, de deux choses l'une, as we say in this town, either the two-thirds who mistrust the triple bottom line impact of innovation are right and we need to change the purpose of innovation, or they're wrong and we need to radically change the marketing of innovation. Most innovators who I talk to would go for the second explanation, but I think you A, need to recognize the need for modesty, you B, need to recognize the need for a broader debate about innovation, and C, to acknowledge that we need to at least repurpose the narrative so that we show how innovation relates to what most people out there as opinion leaders think they want the economic and innovation machine to deliver in the 21st century. So that's the, the first, if you like, political narrative problem we face. The, the second thing, and we've talked about it a bit already, is geography. I think we, we, we talk as if we know what innovation is and we're not quite sure. And we often, especially if I may say so in this continent, forget about geography. Um, if I can attack a little bit the brief that we were given, uh, as a, as a career-long internationalist, I'm not sure that it, it should be our prime goal to play mercantilism. I really don't agree. When Airbus brought fly-by-wire to the world, that was good for the world. Boeing might not have liked it, but it was good for the world. It's probably good for Boeing. When uh, gaffer companies bring stuff that we then use, that's good for the world as well. And when the general purpose data technologies are picked up by, frankly, an incremental business innovator like Uber, I would argue that's good for the world too. But it's very derivative and it's not a big scientific breakthrough. It's a change of a business model. So I think Europe has to be aiming to play its part, using innovation, being a global player. But we have to avoid doing that in a mercantilist mindset. But the second part of geography is, yes, we need the single market, but above all, we need to accelerate the learning process that the 220 nuts three-level regions enable us to have. And I think we see the beginnings of that in the use of the structural and regional funds for smart specialization. I think Professor Forey would say that his ideas around smart specialization are rather similar to what the MIT is laying out in regional entrepreneurship acceleration. We're, we're experimenting with that. We have the vanguard group of, of regions taking individual experiments and sharing them and accelerating them, but it's not done enough. So extension, which is an old approach to innovation deployment, is something that we don't do enough in Europe and we probably should. 
And the third aspect, I think, of geography is not everybody can be Silicon Valley, Scott said it first, but everybody needs innovation. And in my view, the most exciting university experiences going on today in Europe are those where universities that are not Leru global brand universities take a degree of local economic engagement and design thinking and create innovative solutions for the SMEs in their area. That's innovation too. They may not, or they may, invent something that then becomes the next Uber or the next Airbus, but we have to be attentive to where we are, and place-based innovation is as important, whether you're a very developed continent or a less developed continent, as is the finding the next philosopher's stone, the next global company. The, the final thing I would say around entrepreneurship is it's crucial. And I think we're learning in Europe, the Irish have done it well in the e-commerce space, that you can indeed use nudge vouchers to seed entrepreneurship in those smaller companies where actually the know-how and the self-confidence is not present among management to pick up the tools. In, in a slightly more important area, which is advanced manufacturing, if you look at the big companies in Europe, 80 plus percent of them are using the cutting edge technologies today. They get it. But only 30% of the rather smaller companies. So again, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a problem of seeding entrepreneurship all the way down the pyramid of companies. And that may be changing the way we educate people, but it may be actually giving small incentives to become more risk taking. I personally think the people side is also underestimated in Europe education, skills, creativity. And I think finally, and then I'll stop, there's a word which people talk about in, in the theory on entrepreneurship, which I love because you don't hear it much as a bureaucrat in this town, which is rebelliousness. Not rebellion or revolution or cutting people's heads off, but an acceptance that being edgy, being offensive, being loud is good. And I think there is a problem in Europe about being too civilized sometimes, and we have to somehow capture that as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. So thank you for reminding us of the complexity of innovation and what kind of innovation we, we actually should be uh, looking for and what role Europe can actually play in that. Before we actually uh, give the floor to, um, to the floor for uh, uh, questions and answers. I would like to do a short tour uh, with, with the panel members too, to use their great minds uh, here to comment on each other and also there are always things that you forgot to mention uh, and put in, 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 uh, in perspective again. So I would like to go one short uh, round uh, again uh, with comments or, or uh, follow-up uh, questions you might have for others uh, here. And uh, so to start with, with Scott here, so we had a lot of discussion from the other panel members on innovation policies. Was that one, is that one of the elements that can help you also in predicting who will actually be the growth companies uh, here or is that completely irrelevant? Uh? So, so, what, um, so one of the things that we've been able, so, so let me, I'm gonna come to that question, um, but, but sort of do a, a bit of a roundup. So, so let me, I, I want to make two really, I think, key comments that just kind of reflect, I think, on this and just, you know, kind of building on the, on the, on the comments just before. Is the first is, 
I think that we, I'm going to echo the importance of being modest about the ability to predict where and the right where innovation comes from and what the consequences are likely to be that's you know it's and 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 don't you know the, you know innovation involves the creation of novel things and if you think you have a model for novelty you either thought haven't thought through the word model or novelty quite hard enough and there's a changing nature to innovation right now i think um you know, when uh, uh, Dominique uh, was one of the pioneers in this area, I think there was a long time where we knew that innovation was likely concentrated in a relatively small numbers of sectors of the economy. We even came up with the term high tech to describe that. My most successful students from MIT in the last five years are used car, car salesmen. They're selling used cars. They've taken a design approach to that. They've built a marketplace that's been phenomenally successful in the United States, and they built a kind of multi-billion dollar company out of it. But they're used car salesmen. That's their SIC code. There's a changing nature to the consequences of the scientific and technical inputs to where you're likely to get productivity growth. I think there's separately issues about whether or not, um, since they're reducing the prices of used cars, and used cars have always had big productivity measurement issues themselves. I'm not sure that their innovation is being registered in the productivity statistics. So that's first part, is that we need to have more attentiveness that rather than the model that we started with. The second though, and I do want to say though, systemically, the system though, while there's tremendous uncertainty about consequences, it is, we have, undertaken many researchers around the world, I think the academic side here as well as the policy side, in being a, and you know, you know, many people on this panel have advanced our ability to think systemically about innovation. I think that we should, we should uh, not just use the word innovation system to mean something we don't understand. Systems have structures, and innovation systems have structures. And we should be sharp and delineated and more granular in what the innovation system of Europe looks like regionally and transnationally. The third and last point that I'd make, and I think I'm gonna finally come then uh, down to uh, Ryan Hilda's comment, is that um, I think that the last piece of it though, is I think that there are many good things that the European project in this town is about. But I think that once again, I'm gonna start where I started, that ultimately to influence the behavior of innovators and entrepreneurs requires policies and institutions that actually affect the behavior of people who are engaging in acts of rebellion. And you, it, and you better start there. And uh, you know, when Larry somebody who's a big, uh, has done a lot of work on clusters and smart specialization, I would claim that the Smart Specialization Project, which I love, nonetheless is not connected to those stakeholders deeply. But that when you connect it to stakeholders in those regions and transform their activity through cluster policy, through accelerators, through the kind of experiments that Albert was talking about, that is a foundation. But it is not what's being happening right now. And that is what we're trying to do. I'm not saying it's perfect, we are learning, but we are trying to take a different approach. I'll leave it at that.
I'm sure we will uh, continue that discussion uh, uh, later on. So, uh, Albert, uh, time for you to give some uh, comments and feedback uh, here. But one of the issues that was also discussed here is the complexity of the system, uh, how difficult it is to predict. Well, if you do experiments, how can you assess, like what you said, the impact, uh, particularly because there's a lot of uncertainty. We need a long term very often to see the impact. How does that make it even more difficult to run experiments on innovation policy instruments? It's not the first time that someone has asked me that, yeah. that, that question. But actually, for a jump into, I, I, in, into that, uh, I was wondering whether you as a chair were happy with what we had said. Because I mean, if we just looking at the title of the session, it's about what works and what doesn't. And what I've, uh, 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 we've given you has been more of how to find out what works and actually, which probably is more important because I mean, going back to uh, what Robert was saying, uh, and what also Scott was, was reinforcing, there is no universal recipe for success. If someone is selling you that, it's basically a snake oil, don't, don't buy it. Uh, there are tools, approaches that you can use to make sure that whatever you're doing in whichever position, place you are uh, uh, doing, actually you're trying to do it as, you know, you're trying to do a job as good as possible. And even that, it will always be you know, a combination of, you know, it will depend on judgment, it will depend on, on, on luck, uh, uh, uh. But I hope at least that the different ideas on you know how to think about those things are helpful uh, uh, to for you to find the answer on the f on, on the things on, on the challenges that you are actually facing. Uh, on the question on uh, a system uh, level experimentation, I mean systems are complex. We we uh, uh, know that, uh, but typically uh, 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 if we think about uh, system interventions. At the end, they involve actually concrete things on the ground. So some people say, oh, you cannot experiment with uh, creating ecosystems. I mean, see, you cannot kind of randomly create Silicon Valleys. Well, you know, the world has tried without much success. Uh, uh, but actually, the tools that you use to uh, 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 create you know, in an ecosystem intervention, maybe creating a class, maybe creating an incubator, maybe running a stakeholder event, maybe uh, 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 creating a little bit of a seed funding, maybe connecting startups and corporates. All these are actual concrete interventions that have processes, uh, and those are actually testable. So what I would say is, yes, you cannot, te I mean, you cannot in a very formal way experiment with creating ecosystems, uh, I guess, unless you're China, and then you can say, okay, we're going to randomize in, you know, a lot of, but, uh, 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 I guess, uh, but in practice, uh, this is not, Possible, but you can experiment with the tools that you use within the ecosystem to actually change the ecosystem, and this is something that's rarely done, and it's uh, worth doing. And I mean, going back, I guess, to a p one point that Scott mentioned, even when you're thinking about uh, when you're thinking about ecosystems and when you're thinking about learning from ecosystems, you sort of have to combine learning at different levels. Yes, this uh, when it comes to the interventions on the ground, you can test and you can actually draw RCTs on them, but you also need to evaluate, you know, and you need to put in place systems to learn the at, the, at, at the ecosystem level. And this is where, uh, you know, the work at MIT has been doing in big data. We're actually doing similar projects in you know, Wales, exploiting big data as well. Uh, it's, uh, 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 no, a very useful avenue for the future. Thank you very much. Uh, no, no, I'm very happy because I, I see a lot of ways forward uh, in, in how to better answer the question uh, that we was raised. So, Dominique, uh, you want to... Uh, Give some comments on other presentations or things you forgot to mention. And I will make 
just uh, one uh, general comment. Um, uh, what um, uh, Robert Madeline mentioned about the importance of um, not only of the large firms that are really uh, moving uh, the frontier, but also this uh, myriad of uh, small firms that might be a bit behind, but which are also in many, they have their own niche and so on. Um, I would uh, certainly uh, agree with that, and they have to be taken in consideration when one thinks of uh, research and, uh, and innovation policy. What is uh, uh, specific in the context of the moment, I believe, is that uh, for many of these companies, innovation is about uh, moving digital. And this is not a purely incremental uh, change. This is really, uh, even if you keep most of your product as it is, it's about changing your business model, changing your business processes, and so on. Even if you are in some uh, remote part of uh, Portugal or whatever, uh, you are now subject to the competition from, uh, if not Huawei, could be other Chinese uh, companies, and um, you don't have all the protection that you used to have. So uh, it's, uh, these com even small companies, they have to make leaps uh, forward. Um, and this is, um, uh, we know that digitalization is already difficult for large established companies in traditional industries. Just look at the automobile industry, the challenge it is, all the uncertainty, the mistakes and so on that they are doing. Uh, so if you're a small firm, you can just imagine how difficult it is. So it's um, uh, a big question, how can uh, policy help, if whether policy can help? and how policy uh, can do it. And certainly uh, experiments are needed uh, in this field uh, as well. Um, the uh, ecosystem uh, dimension is important because companies will learn uh, from each other as well. Uh, and then geography matters, uh, local ecosystems and so on. Uh, but also I believe uh, a science and the provision of uh, science and of scientists by government can help as well. You need engineers, you need uh, these people who are the frontier of knowledge, and when it is there, the frontier of knowledge is much about research. I mean, artificial intelligence, it's hard to make the distinction between what is research and what is experimental development and what is pure development. Um, so there is room there uh, for uh, research, um, uh, research policy. I would just end by a, a note of uh, optimism still for, for Europe. Uh, if we look back in the past um, at an example that is the invention of the printing press, Gutenberg, we all know Gutenberg, uh, 1451, 23, not sure, there are no specific, very precise records. He invented the printing press. Uh, but the, the, the rest of the story is not that well known. First, Gutenberg died a few years later, wound in poverty and so on. Uh, although it was the beginning of a huge industry and a number of people became rich. Who became rich thanks to the printing press? Well, the editors became rich. Uh, because first, they were in control of a key asset, which was access to customers in a time when very people had the uh, resources to afford buying a book and many, very few people had the interest in buying a book. You could sell just a few hundred copies in Europe. So knowing who these people were was a key asset first. So you could make value uh, by being at this position in the value chain. And second, uh, the technology became very fast commoditized. 
it was just a question of buying the machines. Serving it was not that complicated. So the editors could uh, sort of fund uh, the ones, the printers, in a way. And they would capture the value. So even if Europe has not been at the forefront of inventing the internet and all those digital technologies, maybe when it comes to, uh, let's say, the content, access to customers and the like, there is a lot of value. There is innovation there to do as well. And that could be a future for Europe. Thank you. Uh, but perhaps that's actually not uh, to end on a good note, but on a bad note. <laughs> because the question is indeed whether Europe can actually use the innovations that are being developed here, not if it doesn't have the technology assets, but the complementary assets. But maybe also Europe is actually lagging on that aspect, <laughs> aspect too here. But let's still be optimistic uh, here. So, uh, Egon, so since you're the only one from the corporate sector uh, here, so let me ask you again also what kind of comments you still have, but also to which extent do you actually trust innovation policy and uh, how would you like to have a bit more experimental perspectives in innovation policy too? Could you live with that? Yes, so maybe at first I want to say we discuss innovation and innovation experimental, but everything was independent of the digitalization. So this means it's a process which is valid for each for the time being. And uh, then I have one question about the, 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 the original university. So maybe for Europe we need some light tower university, but we need also the original un university which sub supports the domestic uh, in industry. So that is short notes. Distribution of different types of universities, and then Robert, uh, finally your last word uh, here. So we talked a lot about stakeholders and stakeholder consultations. You also mentioned how important it is to get these more creative minds. Do you think that on these stakeholder platforms that Europe is so good in organizing that we have enough of that creative minds, or that it's more the typical players that are represented in the stakeholders, and we're missing the right kind of stakeholders in these platforms? I think if we're talking about institutional structures that bring the stakeholders of the real ecosystem together, none of us are necessarily doing it very well. And I think in the, in the smart specialization game, which we're playing since the beginning of this round of, of structural fund planning, we've begun the conversation, but, but I, I pick up Scott's word again, we haven't created the institutions which will maintain the engagement of all these stakeholders with whatever innovation process is going on at city or region or country level. So I think that that is a piece of no regrets work. And then on your optimistic, pessimistic question, I would simply say that um, we need, as in the previous panel, we need no regrets policies, especially in a system where we know more and more, but but there's a degree of modesty. And I do believe that, um, I, think, I think actually Albert is too modest on behalf of the panel. I think we've each laid out some ideas as to issues where we need a stronger no regrets intervention. Uh, I think, you know, skills, the regulatory framework for something like 5G is gonna be crucial. Experimental approaches to nudge the trailing majority of companies into the digital age. And there, I think, the, the recently closed Irish experiment to get SMEs online, uh, the full evaluation hasn't yet been published, it's quite exciting for a few 
1,000 uh, euros a shot, you get a large uptake, you get more employment, big increase in overseas sales from the Irish Republic, big increase year on year in, in sales overall. This is making a, a, a significant difference for a small intervention in a potentially significant sector. And I think that's just one small example which shows that Albert's point about the experiment is right, but we lack an institution that says to the other 27 member states, hey guys, the Irish have done something very clever, now let's all try it for a year and see what happens. We don't have that institution. So really trying to learn more from the experiments on a European scale. Yeah. Okay. So I think we uh, abused your patience enough uh, here. So it's time to uh, give you the word. Um, so do we have mics? I have questions, but I don't have mics. Ah, yes, there. Yeah. Sorry. So if you very quickly also identify you and, and have a very short question, if it's particular to any individual one, please also identify that. Thank you. My name is Anastasia Sofandreou. I work for the Commission. My expertise is in energy. Um, I want to raise two issues. One is more practical than the other, so I'll start with that. And it has to do with patents. Can you speak up? It has to do with patent laws. Patents. There's yep. a large okay. um, difference between patent in the US. You have access immediately to 300 million uh, consumer market. Whether in Europe, you have small fragmented patents you need to go through and so forth. So the patent is not integrated in Europe. You don't have access to the whole European market with one patent. And I believe maybe that's an issue for innovation. Because if you're an innovator, you want to protect your innovation, you immediately think of a patent. Um, also, of course, the patent has the capacity to stall innovation because once one, one person has a patent, he holds it for 20 years, and maybe that's too long. Maybe that's too long for him to recover his expenses and so forth. So that's my first point I'd like you to, to, uh, to comment on. The other one. Short, please. Because short, <laughs> yes. Uh, just, like I said, it's more theoretical. It has to do with the economic model that we have today, the economic model. And my question is whether this economic model is actually able to sustain innovation if we think that, A, companies tend to salvage every drop of the old technology first, and two, whenever there's something innovative, it almost always goes to the market according to the current market rules, which means it's going to be competitive to the alternative. So for example, if I make a robot that cleans your house, I'm going to sell it to you a bit less that you will find a cleaner for cleaning your house, for example. And that's also not really good for humanity because we need innovation, we need technologies to advance humanity forward. And that's been Yep. Uh, the example from ages ago. So that's okay. my two comments I'd like to make. <laughs> These are very big uh, comments here. So I suggest we collect a number of comments and then go back uh, to the panel uh, here. So you have to attract a microphone if you want to ask a question. Yep. Thank you. Uh, I'm Karen Wilson, a senior fellow with Bruegel. And um, you talked about changes in the innovation system. Um, and what I'm really missing are how do we change, we also need changes in the innovation policy system. And I was hearing talk about different tweaks here and there and different things happening in different countries, but how do we really have systemic and scalable change? 
And we heard about some great tools. Uh, we heard about all the great data that's now available and what we can do with that. But how do we connect the experts and academics that have access to this data with the policymakers so that we can actually use and, and scale some of this? And we also heard about experiments and the power of experiments. Um, but again, these uh, take time, they're costly. So again, you know, how can we scale this up? Uh, we know we have particular challenges in Europe uh, about the single market uh, that Dominique uh, uh, mentioned. But you know, how do we get beyond all of the old, okay, oh, we have these challenges, we can't do it. How do we really bring systemic, scalable change to innovation in Europe? Because if it's more of the same, uh, we're gonna lose. Um, and I would just add, um, also, there's the issue of the capture of large firms. So how do we get around that as well? Thank you. Yeah. Okay, a question will be addressed for you. Yeah, we have... Ah, yeah, yes. Hi, uh, Craig Nicholson from Research Europe. Um, in terms of what, what doesn't work and spending our money more intelligently, can the panel think of any existing instruments or policies that they think should be killed off? Or have we not done the evaluations and had those discussions to let us do that yet? That's a fair question. Yep. So we we still have one more. Are there? Yeah. Uh, Rob uh, Robin Ugnan Noel from uh, European Policy Center. Um, I my question is for Robert Madeline. I um, I do fully subscribe to your points on um, the inclusiveness of innovation uh, policies and so on, and or, or the lack of it today, and, and, and the big question around what is the new narrative to, to kind of build upon. I was just wondering to what extent um, local and regional communities are being included into that process, into building the new kind of policy narrative, but also um, into, into the more kind of you know, innovation institutional frameworks and so on. To what extent are they and to what extent should they? And so when I'm speaking on, of, about local and regional institutions, I, I mean from, from local mayors to you know, regional media and, media and so on. Thanks. Robert, you got that? Yeah. Well, we still have one more question and then we, yeah. My name is Dalia Marin. I'm from the University of Munich and from Bruegel. I have two questions, one to Scott Stern. I was fascinated by your research and I would want to hear a little bit more how big data has helped you to do what you have done. And then I have a, que I have a comment on uh, Dominic uh, Gelek. Um, I found it very interesting that you mentioned that the productivity slowdown, you don't observe it in the large firms. And if you don't observe it in the large firms, that's actually an indication that it takes time for technology to diffuse, and we know that the technology is taking place, the innovation takes place in the big firms. And so, I mean, that may contribute somehow to the productivity puzzle, because we know from historical studies that it takes about 30 years until innovations uh, have been showing up in productivity growth. So that's shed some light that maybe Mr. Gordon might not be right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we had a number of very big questions, uh, very challenging. So, Robert, you'd like to? So, so if I first take the specific question, I think that, as I said in, in a rather shorthand way, the requirement in the structural funds this time round for local smart specialization programs has been a successful, rather big nudge to the regional actors to begin 
a broader conversation. I would not say that in most regions we yet have truly inclusive, sustained, institutionalized conversations around innovation. So we're getting there. Uh, we have been doing some research, and there's a project which you can find online if you, if you put Engage 2020 into your search engine, all in one word. Uh, there are plenty of tools for doing this stuff better. Most people just don't want to. They'd rather stay in their smoke-filled rooms. So I'd, I'd just like to say that. And the second point I would make, uh, partly in response to the first speaker, but also in response to the question about what are the responses at scale, uh, in my own report, I suggest not so much an innovation principle. I think I'm satisfied that the pro-innovation principle is in the constitutional uh, underpinnings of the European Union, but a pro-innovation regulatory omnibus uh, legislation which would, I think, tilt the playing field in favor of new entrants systematically. That, so you want one uh, significant idea, it would be that one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. uh, Scott, big yeah. data? Uh, yeah. Um, so one, let me start with um, the digitization. You know, Europe can dramatically enhance its entire policy around digital. We can get a 25% increase by going from the word digitalization to digitization. It's a more concise word. Um, this is 25% improvement. Um, so it turns out that there are a variety of innovative activities of which the founding and scaling of new businesses was one that I think are uniquely that um, were an area where large scale data analytics and our measurement problems were first order in the absence of a big data unstructured approach. And while our project is but one of a few that are being done, that uh, the ability to understand the creation of new things, their use by people, the clustering of that, the impact of policy, the impact of what are the conditions that make the policy work or not in different conditions, are all things that I think are now amenable to analysis that previously were not. I've become completely persuaded of that in the last five years. Um, so for example, we were working with White House on um, you know, a, a project uh, that came out of uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the stimulus in the United States. And they had, had great, it had been very elusive to test what had been the impact of some of the big initiatives towards innovation, kind of cluster-driven innovation in the US. And we were able to really provide more granular detail very quickly on that. Once again, not perfectly with lots of caveats, but ones that I would say that went from a bunch of opinions and not really having the tools to really being able to do quantitative analysis that's the beginning of an informed discussion with the kind of judgment that Albert talked about. So I, I just think that there's, a, you know, a, the, the ability to measure the use and diffusion of technology through businesses and organizations by human beings is something that we are now able to do in a way that was previously difficult. So that's just, I, I'm a big fan that people should do that. Um, the only other thing that I would say um, related to that though, and it does go down to this question, is I actually think if I had to say one thing that we, is that my prediction 
is that there will be places in Europe that do very, I, I'm not sure how the European project vis-a-vis -vis innovation will go. But I bet you that there will be more important than the average will be that some places figure out how to get this right and some places won't. And that is going to be less dependent on, I think, what happens in this town than on whether within those individual nuts three regions, the government actually pays attention to the fine-grained industrial structure, the fine-grained bottlenecks, the institutional regulatory barriers, as well as opportunities, as well as the underlying economic structure and underlying opportunity. That is, and, and, and once you start there, you end up with a bottom-up approach, I think, to policymaking in this area that I think had been previously elusive. Thanks, Scott. That's a lot to think about, uh, <laughs> thanks. Aldous? I think I do get to answer part, or well, the difficult challenge of answering part of the uh, current question on uh, uh, changing the innovation policy ecosystem rather than the innovation system. Uh, Obviously, it's quite difficult to do, so I'm not going, I mean, Scott already gave part of the answer, so I'm going to focus part of the answer on one way of changing it, which is making it more experimental. Uh, and here, uh, it's true, there can be some minor, you know, there are two potential outcomes, well, three potential outcomes. There is one outcome that nothing changes. There is an outcome where some things change at the margin, but it doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally change anything. Uh, and there is an outcome where actually you start to see organizations and policymakers thinking in a much more experimental way by almost by default. Doesn't mean everything should be an experiment, but it's part of the you know, on the back of their minds when they are designing policymaking. And what it's useful to think about, uh, I mean, this is actually before I uh, go on. This is what we are trying to do at uh, the Innovation Growth Lab uh, that we've set up. We've set it intentionally up as a collaboration of governments, and we are uh, you know we have quite a lot of government par partners from around the world and uh, quite a lot of ongoing conversations with quite a few other ones and they take quite several years sometimes because it goes from this is you know the first stage we would call it denial this doesn't make sense and it's never possible to do a year later you go back to them and say and they told you well, actually, uh, this actually makes a lot of sense, but it's impossible to do in the context of governments. The third year, they say, actually, this makes sense, and actually makes sense to do it. Let's see how we can convince our colleagues, and, and let's work together on that. And it's a long, it's, it, it, it's a slow process. Uh, but I'm somewhat hopeful, looking at what has happened in other fields. So uh, uh, how relatively small initiatives manage to transform progressively the way people thought about uh, policymaking in these areas. And I think two very good examples are development. You know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, a, cap, you know, a couple of professors at MIT created the MIT Poverty Action Lab. Uh, uh, we actually had at the conference we organized a few months ago, the, uh, one of the directors of the lab uh, talking about, if you look at the, how the field of development has changed since then, and how the big institutions have, you know, and big governments, and, and you know, uh, and, and governments devoting large amounts of money to development policy, have changed their shape to say we have to test things, to the point that some people may say now that it has gone too far, and actually it's a combination of methods and approaches that you need, which I sympathize uh, as a, on the general idea. So it's an example, and you know, in development it has happened. It's, it's funny that the best evaluated policies that a country like the UK does are the ones that they do in Kenya rather than the ones that they do in, you know, in uh, Manchester, uh, there is a little bit of irony in there, but that has happened. Another example is education as well, where uh, a few years ago, the UK government created what was the Education Endowment Foundation. And there the idea was, you know, education is a big challenge. 
how do we learn what works and what doesn't. Uh, they started by mapping out the space, what's the evidence base, and then they, they, they've now funded uh, uh, a couple hundred experimental pilots testing things like uh, does doing music help you in you know, be becoming better at math? What's the impact of having gadgets like this in classes? And the last one, which I find very interesting, and I guess answers the, the is how do you get schools to adopt the evidence on what works and what doesn't work? These are two examples of where small initiatives have managed to start to change the space, but I agree it will take a lot of work, and you know, there is, as anything that has to do with innovation, and this is part of an innovation it's, it's on itself, there is a risk, it may work, it may not. Albert. Um, Dominique, do you want to try to address the question on yes, the big very, question on Pepin? Very <laughs> quickly. On the time to diffuse, um, I would uh, certainly agree uh, that um, this difference in the uh, productivity trajectory of the large and uh, small firms reflect a delay in um, diffusion of technology, which is not just adoption, but adaptation, transformation of business models, and so on, as I mentioned. Uh, it's certainly part of the story. That said, uh, if we have to wait another 30 years uh, for the, this technology to um, affect finally the small firms, uh, well, uh, possibly we could think um, well the government could do something uh, uh, in order to accelerate um, uh, the process, and that I think the object of our, uh, our discussion. On the uh, patent questions, uh, very rapidly also, uh, the unitary patent, uh, I believe, is an answer to um, the fragmentation of the uh, European patent uh, uh, landscape. Although it takes time, well, it has taken more than 60 years for the uni patent, unitary patent to get born. And, um, but now I think the main decisions have been taken and uh, things are progressively uh, taking place. So let's be optimistic. Um, and uh, uh, regarding uh, shortening the life of patents, that could be a good measure, I don't know. But uh, I'm doubtful that it would affect a lot what we are talking about exactly, because uh, most patents, you know, among those which are granted anyway, are not um, uh, renewed until the end of the 20 years uh, statutory uh, life um, that they are given uh, so by law. Um, less than half uh, go to this end, and uh, most of them are from the pharmaceutical industry. So you might think that the pharmaceutical industry is too rich enough or whatever, and it would be a good measure. Conversely, you might think that we need more drugs, and so they need more money, whatever. But um, uh, it would not affect that much the IT, the information technology, software, etc. industry, which anyway, where anyway, the technology cycle is much more uh, is much more rapid um, than that. Finally, digitalization, digitization, it's a, a, a big debate. Uh, if you refer to the Oxford uh, Dictionary, uh, digitization is a sort of technical act. You digitize a sort of analog file. Whereas when it comes to social processes transformation, it's about digitalization. So, but I don't know whether the Oxford Dictionary applies to the US or not. It's, uh, <laughs> To, uh, so, so I want to give some comments to the patents because uh, patents is for me very important because my company investigate uh, in, 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 in my power human resources in order to generate new ideas and I have to save it so that our company gets a return of investment if we have no patents and the lifetime is very short 
approximately 10 years, then nobody will uh, investigate in research because then everything is free. And if you're looking to the most important patents, that is like a, a, a vino that take maybe 10 years, and after 10 years it is mature, then, then you can see that it's in a standard or that is uh, an application for the mass market. Then my last word is about, uh, about the digitalization. I have looked in your abstract, you write, the new digital revolution, but because my understanding is the digitalization has started with the GSM system, and that was 88 maybe, but now, so so we are maybe, uh, we have 2016, that is more than, uh, uh, more than uh, 18, uh, more than 30 years ago. This means, so we have slept 30 years for our digital, digitalization. <laughs> so maybe, but, but maybe my, my daughter is uh, 22, she's a digital native, also other children which uh, was born around 90s because uh, that everybody is digitalized, they are using digitalized. Okay. have already heard and smelled that it's time for uh, lunch. Uh, I would particularly like to thank uh, our panel. It was really a great discussion. We had a high uh, quality uh, panel members uh, here. Thanks a lot for your contribution. Um, of course, we didn't answer the, the, the question on what works and what doesn't work. Um, but I think we can still end with a positive note on this. We know that the systems are very complex. We know that we have to take a systemic approach if we want to understand innovation policies better. But uh, we do also, in this panel, made it very clear that we do have the tools and we do have the data to progress on this and to learn more about what works and what doesn't. It's just that I think we need to scale up a bit that whole process uh, here, and particularly at the EU level, to be a bit more as a lead user on this and also to diffuse much faster what we learn uh, so that uh, we can actually scale up that whole process uh, here. So maybe next year we will be able to answer the question uh, here. So let's work on that. But first we go for lunch and thank you all for your discussion.